Okay, let's get started. Let's pray. Father, uh, here we are again, another class, and once again we are needy and dependent upon your spirit. So we ask that uh, you would illumine our minds and help us as we look at your word and as we look at church history. Help us to change, help us to think about what we're looking at and be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing uh, looking at the apostolic fathers, looking at their doctrine, what they believed about uh, baptism, what they believed about the Lord's Supper. And we're going to look at a few more things dealing with baptism, and then we'll look at uh, the Lord's Supper. And then, Lord willing, we'll actually wrap up the apostolic fathers. We did, I think, five classes on them. I was only anticipating one or two, but... um, Anyway, so before we do that, I do want to point out something to you in the Didache. If you remember, it's one of the documents that's associated with the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, There's a prohibition, actually, against abortion in the Didache. It says, thou shalt not procure abortion, nor commit infanticide. So recall, the Didache was written as early as 50 AD, and so very early in the church's history, uh, in the early church's history, we see that Christians are pro-life. The sanctity of human life was an integral part of the early church. And so they're speaking out. And so in the Didache, which is this kind of how-to document on how to do church, they're making sure that people know that abortion is evil and it's something that Christians are not for and something that Christians stand against. So we continue with the Apostolic Fathers. Remember what we saw last week uh, in the second century. This is what baptism looked like. Baptism was to be done in living water, in running water, because they wanted people to understand the refreshing benefits that come to us in the gospel. So instead of baptizing somebody in a warm hot tub, you baptize them in a cold flowing river because that is a picture of the refreshing benefits of the gospel. Um, if there uh, was cold water, is what they preferred. Uh, if not, warm. And if you couldn't find a river or a stream, then they said you can actually get a pitcher of water and pour it over the head of someone three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so there were two non-negotiables that we looked at it when it came to baptism. One, obviously, is Water And two, it was the Trinitarian formula that we are baptizing people. They were baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We also saw that baptism was preceded by weeks, if not months, of instruction in Christian doctrine, in Christian belief. And then the candidate would stand before the church body and answer questions in the affirmative. Questions like, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah that is promised in the Old Testament? Do you believe that he lived and died and rose again? They would answer these questions in the affirmative. Then they would be baptized And then they would finally get to eat the Lord's Supper for the first time. Again, this is how they did it back then. It doesn't mean that we have to do what they did. Some of the uh, specifics of cold, running water, things like that. Obviously, we need to baptize in the name of the Trinitarian God. and We need to use water when we baptize. But as far as uh, the way they did it, we don't necessarily have to do that. But we might learn something from them. And we might incorporate those things in how we do church. But this is the way they did it. And one reason, as we've seen before, 
why there were weeks of instruction that many of these new converts had to go through is because they had come out of paganism. Remember, they used to worship a plethora of false gods. It was woven into their culture, into the the fabric of their culture. And so now they were learning that there is only one true God. Whereas they used to go to temples and engage in sacred prostitution with prostitutes and call it worship. Now they're learning that you can't do that. We don't do that in Christianity. Where they used to cheer lions on in the Colosseum as lions were ripping Christians apart and eating them alive. They don't do that anymore. So these new converts to Christianity in the second century had some very serious theological baggage when they came to faith. And therefore... They needed more instruction. Contrary to what we read about in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, people believed and then what happened? Many times they were baptized. Now why? What about weeks of instruction? What about months of instruction in doctrine like they're doing in the second century? Why in the book of Acts in the first century are they believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and then they're getting baptized? Well, let's look at Acts chapter 8. Story you're probably familiar with, with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Let's get some help here as to why there were some immediate baptisms in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8. We're going to read verses 26 through 40. Would anyone like to read that? So I'm not the only one talking. Thank you, Debbie. Through 40? 26 through 40, yes. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his, describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Thank you. So Philip is, uh, here's this guy, sees this guy, shares the gospel with him, and then he's carried away by the Spirit. So I have no idea what that means or what that looked like. Uh, I guess he took off flying, like, do you remember the Greatest American Hero TV show? 
That's, maybe that's how it happened. You know, Philip is saying, believe it or not, I'm walking on air. Never thought I could be so free. That's Philip here. So he gets whisked away. But why did the Ethiopian eunuch get baptized right away? Here's why. Because he was already schooled in the Old Testament. He has his own copy of the book of Isaiah that he's reading. He wasn't some pagan that worshipped 20 other gods. He worshipped Yahweh, the one true God. Where he needed instruction was learning that Jesus is Yahweh, God's son. That Jesus was the one that Isaiah said was slaughtered for our sins as the Lamb of God. And so the Ethiopian eunuch connected the dots quicker than some pagan in Corinth or Antioch. And so when he says, well, why can't I be baptized? There's some water. It happens immediately because he has this background. Also, as I was you know, reading this this week, I was thinking, how cool was it that the Spirit is talking to Philip here and telling him what to do? Uh, I don't think the Spirit of God speaks to us audibly like that nowadays. But I think back then, apparently, the Spirit is telling Philip, go here, do this. Oh, and by the way, Philip, I'm going to whisk you away to another city and you're going to preach the gospel there. So really cool to, to think about that. The Spirit is speaking to Philip and he's responding and doing what he's called to do. So we see in Acts that immediate baptisms are more likely to happen because you're probably dealing with a Jew or someone who has a good, solid background in the Old Testament where it's a lot easier to connect the dots that Jesus is the promised Messiah. This was not the case with most baptisms in the second century. So what we read about in the Didache reflects the culture in which it was written. It was most likely written in the city of Antioch, the Didache was, which had a huge pagan population, a huge Greco-Roman population. And so in this context, as you're doing evangelism and discipleship, you're starting with the doctrine of the one true God. And it's going to take some time because these people are used to worshiping many gods. See, evangelism looked a lot different in the city of Antioch than it did in the city of Jerusalem. And evangelism looks a lot different in California than it does in Texas. In Texas, you have your run of the mill pagans, just like you do here in California. But most of those pagans have some kind of Bible background. They have a knowledge of the Bible that they kind of inherited because it's the Bible belt, right? So they kind of inherit this this knowledge of Jesus and, and the gospel. Not all of them do, but many do. And so you have more background information when you're sharing the gospel with someone in the Bible Belt where there literally is a, a, a church on every street corner. Believe it or not. You'll drive through and be like, oh my goodness, how many churches are there here? There are a lot of churches. But it is changing. And it's changing in our culture here in America too in 2019 because largely today people are biblically illiterate. Sadly, there are many biblically illiterate Christians in the church. But in culture, people are largely biblically illiterate. People don't know the Bible today like they knew it back in 1980 or like they knew it back in 1950. And even more so here on the Central Coast, right? It's, it's different in our context. Remember, we are number two on the never church list in America. The Central Coast is ranked number two in the never church list in America. That means that 15% of the population here has never been to church once. We're also number eight 
on the post-Christian cities in America. There's one spot up in the Pacific Northwest. There's eight areas or cities up in Northeast around New England. And then there's us here on the Central Coast. And so that means when we share the gospel with someone, most likely they have no idea what we're talking about. You mentioned the Garden of Eden. You're sharing the gospel and you're like, you know, when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they ate the fruit, they're going to look at you after a while and say, let me stop you for a minute. Who in the heck is Adam and Eve? They don't have this background like many people do. They have no idea. And that's what it was like in the second century. New converts had to be trained in doctrine. And so the church found it necessary prior to baptism to emphasize Christian beliefs and doctrine. Now, let's do an experiment that will help illustrate my point. You fill in the blanks, okay? Here's a story of a man named... How did you know that? Let's try another one. The spirit told us. The spirit told us, yes. Careful, he might whisk you out of here, Russ. Okay, let's try one more. Four score and... How did you know? I just said three words. Four score and. And I used, what does that even mean? We don't even talk like that anymore. And you still connected the dots by saying four score and... How do you know that? Just a few words and what? The context comes to mind. And you know the story. That's how it used to be in America. But we are in a postmodern, post-Christian world now. And if you told some random person on the street, hey, fill in the blanks for me, okay? Blank died for your blank. They'd probably have no idea. Jimmy died for my in and out Why did he do that? You see, they can't fill in the blanks. They might not know to say, Jesus died for my sins. That's our world today, and it was the world of the second century Christian. And so the second century church had something that I think we're going to have to rediscover in our time, and it's this, pre-baptismal instruction. We can no longer depend on the average American understanding the basic points of a Judeo-Christian world view. And so at the very least, we should be instructing new converts before they're baptized in some of these very basic beliefs like the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture, the Trinity, Christ's full deity and humanity, the spiritual lostness of the human race, Christ's substitutionary atonement and His bodily resurrection, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the physical return of Christ, the virgin birth. These are some of the basics that we want to stress to someone who's a new convert before they get baptized. And so let's talk about what do you do if you have a young child coming to be baptized? I've heard many people say that they think it would be too difficult for a child to understand some of the concepts that I just mentioned. It would be too difficult for a child to understand and to believe in the Trinity. But is it? Should we not teach children about the Trinitarian name into which they are being baptized? I mean, if we're baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, do we want them to come up out of the waters in front of the church and say, who is this again? <laughs> we, we, want, we want to teach them about the name and the God's name into which they're being baptized. We are called 
to believe, right? But not called to fully understand because we are a people of faith, right? By the way, whoever said that understanding the Trinitarian God would be easy? And why do we assume that understanding God is hard and yet understanding the gospel is somehow easy? Is it easier to understand the gospel than it is to understand the Trinity? Is the gospel somehow easier to comprehend and understand? I mean, think about it. Is the gospel really easier to understand than the Trinity? The sovereign God who spoke the world into existence becomes a human being in a humble manner where he has to have his diaper changed and he sucks milk out of his mother's breast and he is dependent on her milk to survive another day. And then he lives a a life of relative obscurity for 33 years and then he gets arrested one day and he gives no offense and no argument and no apology and he allows himself to be nailed to a cross for something that he didn't do. And he didn't call on a myriad of angels who could come to his defense. And then he willingly dies. And then three days later, he is alive. He walks back out of the grave and he starts showing up at his friend's houses unannounced. And then he floats up into the air and he's going to come back that same way again. Is that easy to understand? Tell me, is it easier to comprehend the Trinity? Does the gospel make sense to a rational mind? You see, for some reason, I think Christians think that the Trinity is hard to understand and the gospel somehow is easier. Really? As if it's easier to believe that God became a man and died and then came back from the dead? Christianity is about faith. We are a people of faith. It's about believing the testimony of the apostles and the prophets as recorded in Scripture. And so understand this, the same God that can give you faith to believe in the gospel, because that's a gift, isn't it? Because before you come to Jesus, you're dead in your sin. So the same God that can give you faith to believe in the gospel is the same God that can give you faith to believe in the Trinity. The same God that gives you faith to believe that Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the dead can give that same person, even a little child, faith to believe in the Trinity. You see, we live in a culture that says don't believe anything unless it is rational and sensible and logical and makes perfect sense on paper. And so many people test Christianity by reason. However, the scriptures must test reason. Scripture must be elevated above reason. And so some may say, well, how do I explain? How in the world do I explain the Trinity to a six-year-old? Well, let me ask you, how in the world do you explain the Trinity to a 30-year-old? Do you do it any differently? Mm-mm. No. See, my first goal as a pastor and as a father is not to explain my first goal is to summarize what the apostles and the prophets have said in God's word and then to plead with people to believe it. To plead with my wife to believe the scriptures, to plead with my children to believe the scriptures, to plead with you, plead with you to believe the scriptures, and only after that is it my goal to explain it the best that I can. But my job is to call and say, believe every single word in this book. And we can talk later about trying to understand it and unpack it, but we're a people of what? Faith. So what do you do with kids? Can they recognize that they are a sinner in need of a Savior? Yes. 
So it is no more a commitment of faith, which is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It is no more a commitment of faith for a small child to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the God-man who came to save sinners than it is for a small child to believe in the Trinity. Believing in the Trinity is not any easier to understand than believing that God died on a cross in our place. Both take Faith. Remember, we are a people of faith. We are a community of faith. And we see the emphasis on community when we read about all who were involved in baptism in the early church. Remember last time we saw that the entire church community fasted with the person who was being baptized? Let me read what we saw last time in the Didache. It said, And before the baptism... Let the baptizer and him who is to be baptized fast and any others who are able. And thou shalt bid him who is to be baptized to fast one or two days before notice. Let them fast. The baptizer and the one being baptized both fasted. And then if there were anybody else, anybody else in the church who wanted to join them, they could. And so baptism in the second century like it is in the 21st century, is not an individual thing. It's a communal thing. How do we tend to look at it, though, as an individual thing, right? It's about an individual actually becoming a part of the church community. And so the church was saying to this person who was getting baptized, the church was saying, we are going to show our devotion to you as your church family. When you prepare for your baptism... We prepare with you. When you fast, we fast too. We're going to show you our commitment up front, our commitment to you, so that you know that discipleship is not an individual thing. It is a community thing. Remember what we've seen with the Apostolic Fathers over and over again. They're trying to downplay individuality in the church, and they're trying to hammer over and over again the communal aspect of the Christian faith. All right, questions or comments? Good. Okay, we'll continue. Now we're going to look at the Lord's Supper in the Apostolic Fathers. We actually see the emphasis on downplaying individuality when we come to the Lord's Supper as well. Uh, You might call it communion. You might call it by the name that the Apostolic Fathers used. They referred to it as the Eucharist. You may have heard this term before. The Eucharist. What does the word Eucharist mean? Where does It comes from a Greek word. Anybody know what that Greek word means? It comes from the Greek word. I saw, did I see a hand? No. Uh, Eucharisto is the Greek word, which means I give thanks. So the Apostolic Fathers in the early church called the Lord's Supper or called communion, they called it the Eucharist. Now, where did the Apostolic Fathers get this word, this name? Can you recall any passages in the New Testament that help to explain why they focused on thanksgiving and giving thanks when you celebrated communion or when you celebrated the Lord's Supper? Can you think of any passages that mention thanksgiving, someone giving thanks as they're taking the Lord's Supper? I'll give you a hint. His name starts with a J. Not Jeroboam. Jesus. Jesus, right? Luke 22. 
I'll read it to you. Luke 22, verses 17 to 21. And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So Jesus, uh, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, gave thanks before the bread and the cup. Where else? Can you think of another passage in the New Testament where someone mentions giving thanks when we take the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 11. Yeah, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to talk about this in just a minute. We'll unpack that verse a little bit. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us that Jesus gave thanks. So the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion, is an opportunity to return thanks to the Lord. To thank Him for the bread. To thank Him for the wine. For the Welches. The grape juice. And to thank Him for what they represent. And also to thank Him for all of his blessings, the material and the physical. To thank him that he died for our salvation. The Didache shows us that the early church, the early church also, they gave thanks not just for salvation. They gave thanks for food and drink also. Listen, it's the first quote on your notes. It says, but after you are satisfied with food, thus give thanks. So what they would do is, we'll talk about it in a minute. They would come together as a church and they would have this giant... Uh, they called it a love feast or the agape feast. They had this giant meal where everybody ate together and then it culminated with them celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so the Didache here is saying, after you are satisfied with food, after you've had this gigantic communal meal, this gigantic summer barbecue, give thanks. Continuing, it says, and this is what you're supposed to say. We give thanks to thee, O Holy Father, for thy holy name, which thou didst make to tabernacle in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality which thou didst make known to us through Jesus thy child. To thee be glory forever. Thou, Lord Almighty, didst create all things for thy name's sake, and didst give food and drink to men for their enjoyment, that they might give thanks to thee. But us hast thou blessed with spiritual food and drink and eternal light through thy child. That's Jesus. Above all, we give thanks to thee for that thou art mighty. To thee be glory forever. Remember, Lord, thy church to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in thy love and gather it together in its holiness from the four winds to thy kingdom which thou hast prepared for it. For thine is the power and the glory forever. Let grace come and let this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If any man be holy, let him come. If any man be not, let him repent. Maranatha. Amen. And so the early church uh, gave thanks for physical blessings. They're praying. This was their common prayer that they would pray when they celebrated the Eucharist. They wouldn't say, are we celebrating communion today? We, we celebrating communion this Sunday? They would say, are we celebrating the Eucharist? And by that, they were saying, are we giving thanks in this communal Thanksgiving this Sunday? This is preceding any of the creeds, is that correct? Yeah. 
This is, this is A.D. 50 to 70, the Didache is, is the earliest date that there is, but definitely before uh, the creeds of, if you're thinking like Nicaea and things like that. Yeah, those are going to come in the 3rd century. Okay. Notice what the Didache says about the Eucharist then. It's the second long quote on your notes there. It says, And concerning the Eucharist, hold Eucharist thus. First concerning the cup. We give thanks to thee. There, notice the theme there again. We give thanks to thee, our Father, for the holy vine of David, thy child, which thou didst make known to us through Jesus, thy child. To thee be glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we give thee thanks, our Father, for the life and acknowledge which thou didst make known to us through Jesus, thy child. To thee be glory forever. As this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains, but was brought together and became one, so let thy church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom. For thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. But let none eat or drink of your Eucharist except those who have been baptized in the Lord's name. For concerning this also did the Lord say, Give not that which is holy to the dogs. So notice the Lord's Supper is for those who, have, who trust in Jesus and for the second century church, you had to be baptized first before you take the Lord's Supper. It was a time of thanksgiving, a time to be refreshed and replenished and renewed spiritually. As we saw last time, remember God's grace always comes to us through the physical. And so when we feed on Christ by faith, as we celebrate communion, we are strengthened by His grace. Where is that in Scripture? Where is it in Scripture that we are strengthened by His grace? Where does it say that God's grace strengthens us as we eat? Hebrews 13, verses 9 through 10 alludes to this. Scholars will, will disagree on the interpretation of this, but here's what it says. It says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So remember, the preacher of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who want to go back to the old covenant, go back to the temple. And he's saying, uh, we have a table that we eat at, that only believers eat at. Those, those Jews who served at the tabernacle, those Jews who served in the temple, they have no right to eat at the table that we eat at because they haven't placed their faith in Jesus. And so we eat at a table where only believers can eat and where God's grace strengthens us, not through the food. His grace strengthens us through His grace as we eat the food. There's nothing special about the food, is there? There's really nothing healthy about that food, is there? If you're looking to get some energy to run a marathon, you're not going to take the Lord's Supper before you do so. You're going to load up on carbs, right? God's grace strengthens us by what we eat and drink when we take the Lord's Supper because we're doing it and saying that we, are, we believe in Jesus Christ. We are feeding on Christ by faith in what He has done for us. Ignatius of Antioch, if you remember him, we looked at several weeks ago, said in his letter to the Ephesian church, I think it's the last quote on your notes, he said, So that you obey the bishop and the presbytery with an undisturbed mind, breaking one bread, which is the medicine of immortality, the antidote that we should not die, but live forever in Jesus Christ. So Ignatius is saying that there's a spiritual grace that is being conveyed to us 
progressively when we eat the supper, provided we do it in faith. I mean, that's what grace is. Grace is, is a, a two-sided coin. Sometimes when uh, God's word uh, mentions God's grace, it's talking about his unlimited power. That's how I like to say it. His unlimited power. And sometimes it's talking about his unmerited favor. So, two sides of the same coin, and depending on the context. Like, at the end of Paul's letters, he always says what? Grace to you. Grace be with you. Or even at the beginning of his letters, grace be with you. What Paul is saying is, he says, I want God's unlimited power to come to you as you're reading the letter of Philippians. As you're reading it, I want God to strengthen you as you read his word. And then he says, at the end, he also says what? Grace to you. Why does Paul say grace to you at the end? Grace to you as you put the letter of Philippians away and you go home and you have to get kids ready for the first day of school like us tonight. God's grace to us is unlimited power to us. Grace to you as you deal with a spouse you're having issues with. Grace to you as you're dealing with that neighbor that's driving you nuts. So it's God's unlimited power. But there's another side to God's grace as well and it's his unmerited favor. That we don't deserve any of the goodness that he gives to us in Jesus. So in scripture, when you see grace, it's one of these two ideas or maybe perhaps both. And so Ignatius is saying that there is a spiritual grace, this unlimited power from God that's being conveyed to us progressively when we eat the Lord's Supper, however often and however many times we do it. That it's being conveyed to us provided that we do it in faith. In other words, he's talking about sanctification. So tell me, each time you eat the bread and drink of the cup, are you being changed? Each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, are you being changed? Are you being transformed? Not instantly, because that would be great, wouldn't it? It'd be great to be able to take the Lord's Supper and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I love that person that bothers me. I wish it worked like that, but it's not mystical and magical. But are you being transformed? Not instantly? Yeah. When you read God's word, does it aid in your sanctification? Does his grace come to you when you read his word? When you hear God's word preached, does it aid in your sanctification? Yeah. God's grace comes to you in that moment, doesn't it? So Ignatius is saying the same thing happens when we eat the Lord's Supper. Something is happening Besides just eating a very dry cracker, right? Or trying to wash it down with only a thimble full of juice, right? You get that little dry cracker? We've got the smaller ones lately, which are good. When I first got here, we had some that they were kind of like part, they, they, they felt like they were part styrofoam, believe it or not. And I was like, we have to get rid of these things. Like, what are we eating? <laughs> Uh, then we got some more cracker ones that are better. The ones we have now are great. But is that it? You just get a little cracker and a thimble full of juice and we're being changed from one degree of glory to another? Yeah. How? Well, as I said last week, the sacraments are the gospel in pictures. And so if the Lord's Supper is the gospel in pictures, what happens every single time a sinner is exposed to the gospel? What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 3? Verses 17 through 18, he said, Now the Lord is the Spirit, 
And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is contrasting the law, the Mosaic law, with the gospel. And he says that anytime we behold the Lord, the glory of the Lord, he says the Spirit changes us. And where do we see the glory of the Lord? In the gospel. And what do we celebrate in pictures when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? It's the gospel. So we're seeing the gospel on display. In fact, Paul will say a few verses later that unbelievers are blind to the glory of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so in the Lord's Supper, we see the glory of the gospel, don't we? And when we feed on Christ by faith, as we eat the bread and drink the cup, the Spirit transforms us from one degree of glory to another. Not that there is some mystical power present in the elements, because there's not. There's nothing mystical or magical about it. But Jesus is present, isn't he? The Spirit is at work, not, hear me out now, not that the bread and juice actually become the body and blood of Jesus. Some people believe that. We're not saying that at all. I don't believe that. There are some denominations that believe that. They believe that the bread and the blood actually become the body of Jesus. And so they have problems because when church is over and you've got all this wine left over, what do you do with the blood of Jesus? You can't just dump it out, can you? And so you had, they had pastors drinking it and feeling pretty good by 1230 because they had to drink all the wine that they couldn't pour out. Right? So the, the, the body, uh, the bread and the wine or the juice are not the actual body and blood of Jesus. But is Jesus present? Yeah. As we'll see in a moment, sometimes when Christians take the Lord's Supper, Jesus is present as the undertaker who buries Christians in the cemetery for approaching the Lord's Supper the wrong way. So, is Jesus present? Yeah, he's there every single time. But why wouldn't God use the bread and the cup to transform us? Why wouldn't he use these gospel pictures to transform us? I mean, what does God have against dry crackers and grape juice? Ignatius is saying, along with the apostolic fathers, that God strengthens us by his grace... He says with the medicine of immortality or the antidote when we eat the Lord's Supper in faith. It's also a reference to the resurrection, Ignatius is saying. So we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, a la 2 Corinthians 3. And one day we'll be resurrected and we'll enjoy glorified bodies for eternity. So we're in this process. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, is Jesus changing us? Is he transforming us? Yes. Is it mystical and magical? No. But when we come to the table and say, I believe the gospel is real and true and I'm going to feed on Christ by faith. Does the spirit impart his grace, his unlimited power to us? Absolutely. All right. Questions or comments? When we do communion and I have a bad cold, I certainly don't put my fingers inside that to 
as for my dress, but I'll say, Lord, you know my heart is where at the right place as I take the punch. And I feel like Christ is there and doesn't condemn me for not taking the cracker to chew on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in some churches, they pass the, the right. shared cup. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and people say, well, if it's real good wine, it'll kill the germs, but I'm too OCD. <laughs> I'd probably let it pass too. Um, I grew up in the Methodist church, and we had to go down to the front, and you would, they had a, a big loaf of bread, and you would, you would pull a piece off, and that, that was nice that there was one loaf. You got the idea that there's one loaf. Paul talks about that, and the Apostolic Fathers do, so you realize you get that sense of community. We're downplaying individuality. I'm a part of this one loaf, this one body. But then they would come by with the cup, and you had to actually dip your bread into the juice which was the grossest thing in the world to have like soggy bread to celebrate communion. And so as a teenager, my friend loved it. He knew I hated it. And I would take the smallest piece of bread and just barely, I mean, they would be getting impatient with me. I would be like trying to get as little bit of juice on it as I could. And my friend would look over at me and he'd wink and he'd grab this big piece of bread and he would like, and he'd look at me and eat it. We probably should have been, you know, taken to the ER because we were, Taking the Lord's Supper in a wrong fashion, but God had grace on us. Um, so, grace Catholic, uh, before you can have communion, you have to confess your sins to the priest. That, that's a requirement. Yeah. In my case, I would say, How much time do you have? <laughs> like, what time are we showing up before church starts? And then for penance, you had to say so many other fathers, so many mm-hmm. Hail Marys, where they have like Mary on a pedestal. Yeah. Like almost even, right? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And there's so much difference here. Yeah. Yeah. A friend of mine that, that was in a church that uh, believed that that it became the body and blood of Christ, really, uh, he's an alcoholic and he will not take the wine. And I, he was a good friend of mine, so I asked him one time, why will you not take the wine if it's truly changed to the body of Christ and it isn't wine anymore and he couldn't give me an answer yeah 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 some some I've been a part of churches where they have uh wine and grape juice and they let you know for someone who might be an alcoholic who that first taste is could be the thing could that be tips them. yeah that tips them uh, over he won't so, take it. yeah even though it's truly the blood of Christ yeah to him. yeah to him yeah right. yeah it's interesting. Um, so there's a lot of fun through church history. As you look at like Luther, you know, his opinion of this and uh, Calvin and different. Well, I follow the line of Calvin that God's grace comes to us uh, and empowers us each time we do it. Not that I uh, get some sort of like boost spiritually from it in the moment. But do I think if I'm feeding on Christ by faith, this is grace coming to me? Yes, absolutely. Is he transforming me and changing me? Yes, it may not be instantly, but progressively over time, I'm not who I used to be. I'm being changed. And the Lord's Supper is a part of what God has given to us to aid us in sanctification and transformation along with the preaching of the word as well. Okay, uh, moving on, we're going to look now a little bit more at the communal aspect of the Lord's Supper. The Apostolic Fathers also believed that this was a time of communal thanksgiving. So remember, they're trying to downplay individuality in their writings. And so when it comes to the Lord's Supper, you can bet your hard-earned dollar that they're going to stress the communal aspect of the meal. I mean, 
Think about this. Because we tend to approach it how? Individualistically. I'm dealing with me and my sins. Instead of thinking communally. Uh, Think about how refreshing would it be for the Lord's Supper to be looked at as a time when the church community, the church family came together, not as individuals, but as a church body in order to give thanks to God. I mean, think about Thanksgiving. What are we doing on Thanksgiving? Are Are we gathering so that we individually can have a good meal? No. We gather to what? Spend time with family and eat together. So rather than a time of private reflection, how refreshing would it be for the Lord's Supper to be looked at as a time when the church community and the church family came together in unity, not as individuals, in order to give thanks to God. Now you're probably wondering, but what about private reflection? I mean, hasn't that been what most evangelicals have heard that communion is about? If you grew up in the church, you probably thought, this is the time, you better come clean you better get real with Jesus because uh, you might get weak, sick, or die. Okay? Most churches stress private reflection. Most churches just stress that this is simply a memorial. We're simply remembering what Jesus did. And by golly, you better make sure you've got no sin in your heart. Anybody grow up like that? Yeah. That's how most evangelical churches in the West have viewed communion. But I don't think that's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, examine yourselves. So flip over to 1 Corinthians 11. What's the problem in 1 Corinthians 11 when they eat the Lord's Supper? People are showing up. They're eating all the food. They're pegging out, getting stuffed. They're drinking all the wine and they're getting drunk. And there's divisions and factions. And so Paul is upset. And you know who else is upset? The Lord is. And what does God do about it? He disciplines people. As we heard in the sermon this morning, judges people and some of them get really, really sick and they end up in the ER. And some of them wind up in the funeral home. Wow. All right, let's read it together. 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to begin at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. Whew. How's that for a scathing indictment of what your church is like? When you come together, it's not for the better. It's for the worse. Continuing. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Wow. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup, After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So the Lord disciplines people. He judges people in Corinth when they eat the supper together. And some of them get really, really sick and end up in the ER. And then some of them actually wind up in the funeral home. Wow. Now why? Here's why. Because these people were eating the Lord's Supper selfishly, individualistically. They have misunderstood the point of the meal. Back then it was called the love feast or the agape feast where Christians would gather and eat this large meal beforehand and then it would culminate in celebrating communion or the Lord's Supper. So they would have fish and bread and vegetables and wine and they'd all eat and then at the end they would celebrate communion. And so that's the context for 1 Corinthians 11. It's a little bit different than how we do it now. Back then they all got together, ate and drank and then celebrated the Lord's Supper at the end. It was a family meal that was consummated with the bread and the cup. And so the whole point of the meal was communal. It was not about privacy. It was not about individuality. It's not about me. It was about us. And if you come to the, the supper and it's all about me first and the gimme gimme's, then you have misunderstood what the meal is about and you might end up with the flu or end up in the ER or end up in the cemetery. It's communal, not individual. Not that we don't examine ourselves, because there is an examination that Paul mentions. And not that we have to fear that we're going to die if we eat in the wrong manner, as if you remember some church member that you don't like, and right as you swallow, you remember them, and you're like, oh my God, it's too late. I'm going to die. The point of this is not to scare us to death. The point is to give thanks and celebrate that God loves us. I mean, God is not that uptight that as you take the Lord's Supper and as soon as you swallow it, you remember someone and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to get sick and die. Okay, That's not the point of it. It's not supposed to be a time of morbid introspection. It's the Eucharist. It's a time to give thanks, a time to celebrate. As you've heard me say before, it's not a funeral. How many of you have grown up and you thought communion was supposed to be a funeral? Quiet, or maybe low music playing in a, in a minor key. Play it in E minor, Sally, because we can't celebrate. And we got its morbid introspection. It's not a funeral. So when Paul gives the call to examine ourselves, what is the context? What are you supposed to examine yourself for? What attitude are you looking for that you want to repent of? Selfishness. Remember, Paul says there's divisions in the church. There's factions. There's cliques. That showed up when they all ate together. Some people were selfishly eating all the food. 
Some people worked later in the day, didn't get off until 6 p.m. They show up, and some of these rich people who get off early or don't have to work at all, they show up, and they've eaten all the good food, and they've pigged out and stuffed themselves. So some people had to go home hungry. Can you imagine showing up late to the summer barbecue, and everybody that got there early ate all the food, and were like, sorry, how are we going to take the Lord's Supper? We, just, we didn't save you anything. And then there were people who were drinking up all the wine and getting hammered and lit, and they're so drunk, they have to get an Uber to get home from church. That's the context. So to sum it all up, it was what? It was selfishness. So Paul wants us to examine ourselves for selfishness, that the meal is not about me, it's about us. It's a communal meal, and that means that you can't have the Lord's Supper by yourself at Pismo Beach. Why? Because there's no one else there. There's no one else to pass the bread and cup to. No one else to pass the tray to. See, when we pass the tray to one another that has the bread and the cup on it, we are saying to one another in that moment, I'm a sinner just like you. Jesus came to save us. We are both forgiven of our sins. You are no different from me and I am no different from you. We are both partakers of the same salvation, both partakers of the body that was broken, both partakers of the blood. We are the same. You are my brother. You are my sister in Christ. And so we should examine ourselves for our communal attitude. We should be asking questions like, who in this building do I need to apologize to? Who in this building have I said an unkind word to? Who in this building do I need to reconcile with? Who in this building am I harboring bitterness towards? You see, there's no way that we could confess all of our known sins, not even our unknown, but all of our known sins in that moment. We only give you, what, five minutes after you get the elements? Is that enough time to come clean with Jesus about everything? Okay, so in that moment, do you repent? Do you confess your sins and forsake them? Of course, because you see the elements and they remind you of the gospel and they remind you of Jesus and you say, Lord, forgive me. And there may be something specific that you ask him for forgiveness for, but there's not enough time to go through our hearts and confess everything. And so we can just say, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Or Lord, specifically, forgive me because I said an unkind word to that person. And when this is over, I want to go make it right. And so I'm going to eat in faith, knowing that you're going to give me your unlimited power to go reconcile with that person after this. So it's a hard issue. If, you've got a, if you're hard-hearted and you're saying, I'm not going to forgive that person. I don't like that person. I wish they were dead. I would say, don't take communion. But if you can say, that person really bothers me. And I know it's my sinful heart. And Jesus, I need you to help me love them. Then I would say, take the meal. Knowing you need him. Feed on him by faith. Praying that he would give you the unlimited power that you need to go and love and forgive that person. All right, questions or comments? We used to do a threefold communion where the women and the men separated and we washed each other's feet and we come together and um, do the communion and then we have our last supper of these little sandwiches, some pickles, yeah. <laughs> and, this, and some water. Yeah. Was that a church in L.A.? Yeah, it's the Grace Brethren yeah. Church. Yeah. Yeah, though I think that I think something like that is easier to do on like a Sunday evening, unless you. We did it on Wednesdays. Yeah. And we only did it not that often. Yeah, yeah. And you usually clean your feet before you 
Ja. Lots of different ways to do it. I think the point of it is that you recognize you're a sinner and that you need Jesus and you need his grace. Um, and he will impart his grace to you and give you strength as you take it. Again, if there's hard-heartedness, that's a different story. That's who you want to say you need to, you need to repent and ask Jesus to help you. But it's a celebration because they called it the Eucharist. It's not a funeral. Uh, it's a time. That's why I always say take and eat and celebrate the peace that you have with God. It's why I call it a family meal and tell people if you're not a believer, don't take this. Uh, in theological circles, that's called fencing the table. Like, you know, letting people know these elements are for people, as the apostolic fathers would say, who have been baptized uh, or, or a Christian. Uh, we don't give that stipulation on baptism here, but that's something the early church did. You can't take the Lord's Supper unless you're baptized. Mm -hmm. uh, but we do at least fence the table, if you will, and say this is a family meal for those who know they're sinners and they need a Savior. All right. What Question? about having it with your own personal family at your house? Like I'm, Thanksgiving time. Yeah. I'm not in favor of that because for me personally, I th I, this is me, I think it should accompany uh, the preaching of the word and should be some sort of uh, people. Paul does say as often as you do it, do it. And so some people take that as, uh, you know, yeah, perhaps if there's a handful of people there, you know, I don't know, I guess two. I don't know. I don't know. Um, so some people do that. I just I for me, I like more the aspect of uh, the public service. Uh, Preaching of the Lord. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong and you can't do it. I would at least say, hey, can't do it on your own unless you're the Apostle John on the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation. Then I'd be like, okay, John, you get a pass. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was at a church once where I led a small group and I asked the leaders of the church if we could do communion on Good Friday because we would meet on Fridays. Yeah. And they asked us not to because they said, not everybody in the church could be invited to it, and it should be a community thing where everybody could come together. Yeah. And so we didn't do it. No, yeah. We're disappointed. Yeah. We I don't. You know. I don't want to be a stickler on it. That's kind of my. I kind of follow more like the old Puritans and the way they did it and the reformers. But you know, I'm not going to fight someone on that. Certainly, you take it to someone who's sick. I think you can do that. I think you can take it to people who can't get to church. Um, Ideally, I think it would be in a public setting where you actually have the preaching of the word and we're responding. But that's just me. I mean, again, if we're all stranded on a deserted island and, and we don't have an official service and we still want to take communion, I'm not going to be like, well, we didn't, you know. Anyway, that's, uh, but as often as you do it. The main idea is that we're feeding on Christ by faith. You know, that's the main idea. Didn't Jesus do it? He did. He did do it and was instituting it then, you know, at, at the beginning. Um, I've, I've done it with small groups before. I haven't done it for years, but you know, we, we would kind of make it a special occasion. Yeah. Just do it with a small group. Yeah. Again, this is just my own personal preference. We did it at our wedding. Um, just so, the two of you? Just, just the two of us, so, you Everyone know. Everyone else is witnesses. Yeah. Yeah, everyone else was witnesses, and I guess I've changed. Like we've talked about, you know, we change through the years. We change our positions, you know, that's okay. Uh, would I do it again then? Mm, maybe not. I don't know. 
if Heather said we're doing it, I guess that means we're doing it. Because I'm going to be a newlywed and you do whatever your wife says. Right? Yeah. So, uh, again, this is just, you know, my personal belief. I don't think it's something you need to be heavy handed on someone about unless uh, uh, I think there should be freedom there. So, a uh, couple more things. How often was the Lord's Supper celebrated in the second century? Justin Martyr, who's one of the apologists that we'll look at next week when we actually finally leave the Apostolic Fathers behind and move to a group called the Apologists. He tells us that it was done once a week. The Didache also tells us that it was a weekly occurrence in churches. And this will change later on in history. And some people only take it once a year as church history progresses. Uh, Most churches today do it once a month. Uh, Some churches do it once a quarter. Some churches still do it once a week. Um, Why do some Christians not want to celebrate it every week? I mean, what's the common objection that you hear? Have you heard why anybody would not want to do it every week? It's routine. Routine? Yeah, some people say it's routine and it loses what? Meaning and, it's meaning and significance. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, I grew up in a church that doesn't do it at all. Yeah. And that was, that was part of their reasoning. Yeah. Those who say, uh, well, it loses is it special meaning if you do it every week, I'd say, well, what about singing? Yeah. We sing songs every week and that doesn't lose. What about preaching? What about giving? Oh, we give every week. It's going to lose its special significance if we get past the offering. That's when you really get to the heart of it. So let's not sing songs every week because they won't be special to us anymore. Well, they, 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 it would become really special, right, if once a month we sang songs. You'd be like, oh, I'm showing up to church that day or there's no sermon. So that's some objections that people have to it. In an ideal world, I would love to have it every week. But we deal with two services and time and we always fight the clock in, in our culture. So um, for the time being, we do it once a month, sometimes twice a month, depending on uh, some special celebration. So any other final comments or questions? All right, I'll close in. Somebody close us in prayer and let's give thanks. Father, we give thanks to you. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you. See you next week.